on the Thursday. This is a uh, very important traditional day in the church. Uh, the word Mondi comes from the Latin word mondum, which just means commandment. And you remember that on Thursday night, our Lord Jesus Christ said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's where we get the word Monday for Monday Thursday. So it's an important day in the life of the church. Some of you have been coming to our noon services, and we're glad you have. It's been a really good time of just taking 30 minutes each noon and thinking about what the Lord taught in the temple precincts on the week of, uh, of uh, His Passion. And uh, we meet again today, and tomorrow is a Good Friday service. We won't be serving lunch tomorrow, uh, and it'll be an hour-long service tomorrow at noon. Tim Russell will be preaching, and uh, we'll uh, observe the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So please uh, feel free to come join us, no matter what church you're from, or if you don't have a church, just come join us tomorrow. And then uh, some of you may be interested in doing the uh, amen thing on Easter morning, uh, 6.30, sunrise. Of course, the problem is uh, <clears throat> with the uh, time change, sunrise doesn't actually happen until 7.10. <laughs> so it's going to be a will sunrise service, uh, sun will rise service. Uh, and about the time we finish, the sun will come up, just as it did on the first Easter morning when the women were so amazed to see the tomb empty and hear the announcement, the impossible, that uh, Jesus Christ, who was crucified just three days before had risen from the dead. So you can join us at Botanic Gardens uh, at 6.30 on Sunday morning. Bring your family. It's a good way to train your children. Uh, just still and stop complaining. Stop shuddering. Uh, bring a heavy coat from my experience. Uh, we've had everything uh, from sun will rise to moon rise and uh, cloud rise, rain rise. We've had all kinds of services through the years. But uh, we have a good crowd. We'd, we'd love to have you join us. And then, of course, I know most of you will be in your churches on Sunday. Uh, if you don't have a place to go, we'd love to have you here for 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11 o'clock services. Gentlemen, it is a, a weighty week, given what we remember this week about our Lord Jesus. And uh, if you'll turn your Bibles to Second Peter, we're going to be, begin a, a letter that tells us more about him. In fact, focuses on him in a very special way. And uh, this morning, we, as we begin a study on this uh, new uh, letter, we believe it's the second letter of the Apostle Peter. We suspect it may be a second letter to the same people to whom he wrote in First Peter, but we don't know for sure. Uh, but Peter certainly claims to have written this letter. As we shall see, it was a, a bit controversial in the early church, and we'll discuss why it is that we think we should be receiving it as apostolic in our own day. But uh, uh, Peter, Second Peter is a very important letter. And before we, uh, before we um, read any portion of it, let's talk a little bit about the background of Second Peter. I don't know if you had a chance, any of you, to read the introduction that's in your um, Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible, but there's a really good infra, uh, introduction there to Second Peter, as there is to all the books of the Bible in this, in this study Bible. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about Second Peter before we look at it in detail. First of all, we want to know who wrote it. And you'll notice in the very first verse that Simon Peter claims to have written it. And that is uh, the view of the church uh, today. It was the view in the early church. But there have been many debates about it. Uh, and the, you will see in this introduction why there were debates. And we can summarize them by saying this that the early church seemed to be a little slow in picking up on Second Peter, unlike First Peter and, and almost all the other books of the Bible. There were a few books that were, that were not universally and quickly claimed by the church. The canon of the church, the canon of the New Testament, as we have it today, uh, was officially uh, declared around the 4th century uh, under Athanasius and Augustine and so on. And that's when the canon was finally declared. Uh, but up until then, the church was using the canon. So when the, the councils met to declare the canon, they were only declaring what the church was already doing. Uh, they didn't create something new. So, and that gives us uh, real encouragement because that means the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the community of the Spirit, recognized the authorship of the Spirit. 
So there was a relationship between the people of God and the Word of God. The people of God know His voice. My sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow me. So the sheep around the world were acknowledging the New Testament as it is, as we have it today, uh, before the 4th century. But <clears throat> leading up to the 4th century, as you can read in this introduction, uh, there was a progression of thought about Second Peter. It came a little more slowly. Here's why. Second uh, Peter has some language, some vocabulary, and some style in the Greek that is significantly unlike First Peter. And some were saying, did Peter really write that? And especially if you know Peter, I mean, he was a fisherman. And Second Peter uses some philosophical language and some more uh, sophisticated literary language. And some thought, that doesn't sound like the same Peter as in First Peter. Uh, secondly, uh, there were some who were saying it is addressing issues, namely Gnosticism, that didn't occur until the second century. And so the issues that are being addressed in Second Peter sound like second century problems rather than first century problems. So uh, these were some of the issues. And the other thing was that during the early years, first and basically second century, there were a lot of um, uh, claims of Petrine uh, authorship of letters that weren't authored by Peter. So there were people circulating letters that were false letters of Peter. And so people's suspicions were aroused already anyway in the early church. And you know that we have scads of letters and books that are not included in the New Testament. And of course, today in the universities, they're saying, well, why aren't they included? There are many different Christianities in the early centuries, they're saying, and the one that you have in your New Testament is just one of them. And why were these others eliminated? And of course, the answer in the university is because of, of politics, that it was the ones, the New Testament you have is there because the people who agreed with that were in power. It's all power play, which sounds very postmodern, doesn't it? That, that all uh, absolute truth is simply a power play on one person's part or another. Well, that's the theory that's being given us about the New Testament. That's not actually the way it happened. Uh, people that were not in power, the churches all over the world, were using canons or lists, rules of letters, and they were judging independently of one another. There were five major C's in the early church, or kind of like the, the Vatican would be one C, one, one episcopacy. You had Alexandria, you had Antioch, uh, Jerusalem, uh, and Constantinople, and Rome. There were five major uh, capitals, if you will, of the Christian church. And they had their own canons. They had their own New Testaments. And what you find by the 4th century, they're all basically using the same canon which once again confirms the fact that God's people hear His voice and they make judgments on the same grounds. And of course, the primary grounds for a letter being received as inspired by the Spirit is that it was apostolic. So the authorship of the letter becomes very important to the early church as well as to us. So we want to ask ourselves the question this morning, why, do we, why would we think that Peter wrote it? Well, first of all, if... Uh, there, in, in the early church, when there was a letter that was a pseudo-pseudonymous uh, uh, pseudo letter that is written by someone else. In other words, if I wrote a letter and said, this is from Rocky Anthony, da-da-da-da-da. Well, that was a practice in the early centuries for you to write a letter in somebody else's name, but it was almost always a heretical letter. In other words, I was trying to foist something on you by using the name of a credible person to foist my own opinions on you. And the church did not accept those letters. They accepted those as deceitful letters. So, yes, indeed, there were a lot of uh, instances where people used another name, as some are suggesting was done here with Second Peter in the second century, but the church never received them as teaching the truth. They usually taught heresies. Uh, so, it was important to the early church that the true author was the one uh, who was claiming to be the author. Uh, secondly, uh, as scholars have continued their study, they realize, you know, in the first Peter, in First Peter, uh, Peter was using uh, what we call a manuensis or a secretary, and he tells us who the secretary is: it's Silas. Silas was carrying the letter, and Silas was probably writing the letter. So you have a style, you know, a choice of a vocabulary and, and syntax and so on that is influenced by the secretary himself. 
Whereas in Second Peter, we don't have any instance of that. The other thing I would say is that people are able to write things in different styles. Uh, look at the Apostle John, who wrote the, the Apocalypse, and he also wrote First John. Those are very different styles indeed. And uh, so you, you can have one person who's writing a letter for a different purpose, and uh, he uses different styles. There should be nothing unusual about that. Uh, and as to whether Peter, a fisherman, could have written Second Peter, let me just give you a modern-day example. I was listening uh, one day to uh, David Gergen, who is, you know, has served on, I think, all the presidential administrations from Nixon until now, except for maybe Jimmy Carter. I think he served in all those administrations. And uh, he, he was commenting on several of the presidents, and he was speaking about George H.W. Bush, uh, George Bush I. And he said, you know, uh, people thought that uh, President Bush didn't have, you know, wasn't a great speech maker or a speech writer. And he said, I was his speech writer, and, uh, and I would take his thoughts, and I would try to craft them in good language, and I would prepare these for him. And the, I'm sorry, it wasn't George Bush. It was Gerald Ford. It just now came to me. It was Gerald Ford. And he said, I wrote Gerald Ford's speech, speeches, and Gerald Ford was seen as kind of a common, ordinary person, you know, football player, played too often without his helmet and all that kind of stuff, you know. And uh, he said, so I wrote his speeches for him. And then he said, Gerald Ford, after he, uh, he retired as president, he was going off to make a speech somewhere, and he sent me a draft and asked me if I'd look at it, a speech he was going to make, and give him some comments. And I said, he said, I read it, and it was a very fine speech. And, and I asked him, I said, who wrote this for you? And he said, well, I did. And Gergen said, Mr. President, I didn't know you could write a speech like that. And uh, he was surprised at Gerald Ford's literary ability. And I'm just saying to you that someone who sometimes uses very common kind of locker room speech or doesn't seem to fancy it up very much, gussy it up, uh, may be very capable of writing something that surprises us every once in a while. And so I say, you know, that should not shock us too much, that Peter can, can dictate First Peter and also write Second Peter. And furthermore, if you get into the text, you'll see, first of all, in verse 1, he claims to have written it. And then if you'll look in verse 12, uh, I'm sorry, verse 17, 18, he talks about the transfiguration. A voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Look at verse 18. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So this person really is claiming to be Peter. And uh, the, the whole letter itself, I think, would fall into question if we did not accept Petrine authorship. So uh, bottom line, through the years... The church by the 4th century, as you will see in the introduction, did uh, accept Second Peter. And the evidence that is in, uh, in our day, uh, does not, there's nothing that would suggest clearly, reasonably, that it is not Petrine. So I suggest to you that, that uh, if the early church, although slow to accept it, they had many um, fake Peter letters circulating in their day, they finally discern that this really is of Peter and of the Lord, that it becomes part of our canon, and we, we accept it. I think that's very, very important. Furthermore, the issues that are being addressed here, as I said, some scholars would say it has to be second century because of the issues it's addressing. I don't think, and many scholars today don't think that, that the issues being addressed here are necessarily Gnostic. Gnosticism, you know, didn't really come into its own until second or third century. These can be pre-Gnostic issues. And furthermore, you know what? They're issues we face today. And I would say wherever you have sinners, you're going to have the issues that are faced in Second Peter. I wouldn't consign it to any given philosophical generation. So I personally don't find any reason not to accept this as written by Peter. I say Peter wrote it. But what's important is if it is canonical, if it is canonical, it must be by Peter because it says it is. And we don't receive things that are canonical. They have lies in them. So it's either in the canon by Peter or it's out of the canon. So uh, you, what you can't have is have it both ways and say, well, this is of the New Testament, but Peter didn't write it. When it says Peter wrote it. So uh, it's in the canon. Peter wrote it. And there's good reason to believe so reasonably by many scholarly uh, efforts. Now, when was it written? Well, in chapter 3, verse 1, <clears throat> you have this statement by Peter. He says, Dear friends, 
This is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Now, we don't know for sure that this is the, this, uh, the first letter would be First Peter. He could have written many letters, and he could be writing his, second, writing his second letter to some other place. But most people would suspect that this is the second letter back to the Asians that he addressed in First Peter. And I think that's probably our best assumption, but we don't know it for sure. Uh, and so if that be the case, we know from tradition that Peter died uh, around 67, 68 A.D. in Rome, it appears. And uh, so many scholars will suggest, as does your Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible, that 65 to 67 A.D. seems to be a logical time period. When you get into verses 12, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 and following, he speaks of his impending death. So Peter seems to have a sense that he's about ready to be martyred, as was prophesied by the Lord Jesus in John 21. So we know it's near the end of his life, which, of course, adds weight to the letter itself. It's kind of like Paul's Second Timothy. Paul knew he was being ready to be offered up as a sacrifice. He knew the end was coming. And it's his last will and testament, if you will. And so I think Second Peter falls in the same category, and we'll see the weight of it, the urgency of it, as we make our way through it. It's a very important letter. To whom is it written? Well, as we said, probably the Asians. We don't know for sure. But it seems uh, to be written to them, but no doubt written to the church of Jew and Gentile. Now, why was it written? And this is extremely important. In chapter 2 of this letter, you will see the sense of urgency that the Apostle Peter has about some false teaching that is going on. Uh, For example, uh, in this false teaching... If you look at uh, the beginning of chapter 2, he says, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Now, in chapter 3, you will see uh, what some of the problems were in their teaching. Look at 3.3. First of all, you must understand that in these last days, scoffers will come, scoffing, And following their own evil desires, they will say, where is this coming, he promised, this parousia. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water and so on. So these folks, these false teachers, you can see, are denying the second coming of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they're denying the judgment of God on the sin of human beings. And therefore, in some ways, uh, they're denying the foundation for uh, morality. And we will find many moral problems in this group. Now, one scholar named Thomas Schreiner that I I like, and he's written a commentary on 2 Peter, suggests that what Peter is attacking sounds an awful lot to him like, Epicureanism. Uh, and what Epicurus taught, Epicurus taught at, at about this time was that, there is, that God does not sovereignly control the universe, that human beings have free choice, and therefore God could not give a prophecy because if he did, that would determine the end, and determine, the end is determined by our behavior, not by sovereign God. And therefore, prophecy can exist, and therefore judgment's not going to exist, and second coming is not going to exist. So that was very much being taught in the ethical schools or in the philosophical schools even before Gnosticism came along in the next century. Now, Epicurus did not teach immorality, but one can clearly see how his his philosophical foundation would lead to it. And that seems to be what was happening in Peter's day in the first century to which he was writing. So you can see then that one's philosophical or theological framework is very important in their spiritual lives, which then becomes very important in their ethical lives. So Peter is addressing a huge issue 
that was rampant in his own culture or the culture of the people to whom he was writing. And he is urgently pleading with them to get to the bottom of this and repent of it from bottom to top or from inside out. And that is, repent of their uh, heretical philosophical views, their heretical theology, their heretical spirituality, and their heretical ethical behavior. All of it. Get rid of it. And he wanted to take it out root and branch. That's what this letter is all about. And that's the reason it's so important. And I suggest to you that, that we're going to see the centrality of Jesus Christ in this letter. That this, you can only root out these destructive things in your life with Jesus Christ as Lord in your life. And that's really what Peter is showing. You cannot do this through philosophical schools. And these people are fooling themselves. The reason, for example, today that you get so much interest in the false gospels, you know, the gospel of Judas, the uh, gospel of Thomas, and all the books that are being written right now, here's the reason you have so much interest in this. The people who are writing those books, Elaine Padgels and Bart Ehrman, Elaine Padgels at Princeton and Bart Ehrman at UNC, many other people, but those are two key ones that you find in the, on the bookstore shelves. These folks are Gnostics. Elaine Padgels is a Gnostic. So, of course, she wants to claim that all these false gospels are true gospels because that she believes what they're teaching. And she wants them included in the canon because that's what she believes. She is right there in Second Peter. And so is Bart Ehrman. They are not just looking as objective scholars at how our Bible was formed and suggesting that we faithful Christians re-examine the foundations for our canon. No, they're seeking to bring a pseudo-Christianity, at least that's what the early church would have called it, a false Christianity. They're seeking to bring that and promote it among us and using scholarly methods to try to convince us of it. Now, that's the reason for all the controversy in our day. There's a new wave of Gnosticism and of some of the same ideas that Peter here addresses. So, uh, in Gnosticism, by the way, Generally, what is being taught, and this is true in the new spirituality, uh, Elkhart Tolle and some of uh, uh, Deepak Chopra, uh, these folks who are teaching new spirituality, basically what they're saying is you don't need anything from the outside. You don't need a Jesus Christ or a God on the outside. And you don't need a Bible on the outside teaching you something. Here's what you need to get in touch with a God within. So basically, you're, you're pushing out all these other things, including your own body. You're trying to kind of get out of the constraints of time and space. And the way you do that is going into this infinite center of your own soul, and there you'll find God. Now, this is nothing new. It was, it's not new today. It wasn't new in the first century. It wasn't even new among the Hindus in India. It goes way back to the Garden of Eden. You will be God's. Says Satan. He promises it to them. If you sin, you yourself will be like God. I mean, he goes, this is, the, this is the oldest heresy in the universe. And it, what it does, it denies truth outside of ourselves, some form of absolute truth outside of ourselves. It denies God outside of ourselves. It denies the sinfulness for which we're all responsible. And we all like that stuff. It elevates me. I become my own God. So there, you can see why we're drawn to it. That's what's going on in every religion, and especially in Christianity, that seeks to distort the truth and to make it something that's just a new spirituality that kind of ties in and blends in with all the other religions. And what we're going to see in Second Peter is, no, there's a uniqueness to Jesus Christ. He alone is Lord. He is outside of you. He is distinct from you. And when you trust in him, he takes up residence in you. But he is still Christ. And it is not just our finding our inner selves. So here we go. Let's look at an outline of Second Peter. You'll notice that in the first 11 verses, he's talking about the knowledge of Christ leading to personal growth. So these folks in the first century would talk about knowledge and how to have knowledge. You see, that was an intuitive idea. If you just kind of have this intuitive knowledge, you can find God. And Peter's saying, no. Uh, you need the real knowledge of God that comes through Christ and leads to growth. The problem was they weren't growing. When you eat weeds, you don't grow. And you've got to eat the real stuff. When you eat junk food, you're not going to be strong. We try to teach our kids how to eat from the basic food groups. You know, beer and potato chips and 
I can't forgot the other two. Uh, Twinkies. Uh, yeah, that's the other one. Uh, but we try to teach our kids the basic food groups so that they grow. And Peter is trying to give them the basic food groups, spiritual food groups. True knowledge comes from true teaching. He's saying you can't know Jesus Christ. You can't know God apart from Jesus Christ. And he has to be taught you. That's the reason that heresies are so dangerous. They're undermining your knowledge, which undermines your growth and are self-destructive, as we have seen. Thirdly, false teaching is corrupting the church. He's saying, let's talk about the big elephant in the living room. There's a problem in the church, and it's corrupting the church. And we'll talk about it here. Maybe we'll even name some names. Who knows? Fourthly, he says in the third chapter, belief in God's final judgment leads to godliness. That should be 3, 1 through 18, by the way. Belief in God's final judgment leads to godliness. So when we repent of our belief that, well, God is never going to come, uh, he, he wouldn't hurt a flea, when you repent of that, you'll find now you've got some possibility of growing in godliness. Godliness does include the fear of the Lord and knowing that he is judge. And if you don't fear him, you're stupid. God's awesome. And you're just way off base if you don't fear him. That doesn't mean you're not his son. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It just means he's awesome. He is to be feared. And his final judgment is an aspect of that. Now, what we want to do is look at these first two verses. That's all we're going to do today. Let's take a look at them. Second Peter 1, 1 and 2. This gives us a good introduction uh, to this letter. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I remember uh, before I became a Christian, this would be uh, 30 plus years ago, I was at a meeting, a business meeting, and uh, it, was a, it was a dinner. And there was some guy sitting across from me, and I knew from the moment I got there, I wasn't going to like him. He looked like a Christian. And uh, he was nice. And uh, he started to ask me some questions, and I knew that he was probing, you know, going for my juggler. And he, and he started this way. He said, what do you think is the most important thing in life? I knew I didn't like him when he asked me that. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm a non-Christian trying to figure out the meaning of life. Look, I'm just looking for where the next party is, I, you know. So I said, well, I suppose to be happy. Now, in that moment, you know, when I was in my early 20s, I didn't realize it, but I was quoting Aristotle. <laughs> I would have been impressed with myself if I had known that. Uh, and what came to me intuitively is basically what the, some of the brightest philosophers through the ages have said. The, the, the purpose of life is to be happy. So, and, and, you know, now that I've become a Christian, in, there's a sense in which I'm saying, well, you know, I, I'm, I, I wouldn't disagree with that too much, uh, that the purpose of life is to be happy. And, and I would say this. I think... The beauty of the Christian faith is that we may say the purpose of Christ is to glorify God and be a good Presbyterian after all, uh, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Okay, I buy that. But it does say, doesn't it, to enjoy him forever? I mean, happiness hasn't been taken out even of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I mean, you'd think every, all the happiness in the world would be drained out of that document. But no, it's, it's still in there. Uh, so it's you know, to, to, enjoy, to enjoy him forever. And I would say now... You know, Aristotle was probably helping us out a little bit because we, we believe in being happy too. The question is, how do you find your happiness? In a way that others find their happiness, there's a good utilitarian addendum, but how about our religious addendum, that we're happy, everybody else is happy, and God is happy. And how do you do that? And I would say to you, in meeting Christ, you know, 32 years ago, I, I, I found the way the truth and the life. I found the way in which I am happy and God is pleased and my neighbor is pleased as well. And I believe that's what Peter is doing. And, and, I, and I, the reason I speak of happiness is if you look in verse 2, he's talking about grace and peace. And if you want to summarize Christian happiness, if you want to summarize human happiness, it would be grace and peace. How are we going to get there? And I want to suggest to you this letter is written about that that we may grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you look in, in chapter 3 at the very end, you kind of get the purpose of Second Peter. In 3.17, Therefore, dear friends, since you know, already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall 
from your secure position. So he's writing to them that they not follow this heresy, follow these crazy thoughts, and fall from their secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. So he is closing out the letter with a purpose. It's so that we'll grow in, in, the, in his grace and knowledge. And then now if we turn back to first, uh, 2 Peter 1, 1 and 2, we'll see that he's speaking about grace and peace. How do we get this? And I want to suggest that in these first two verses, he really kind of gives us the secret of the universe. He kind of tells us how to have what Aristotle says was the, was the chief end of being a human being, which is to find happiness. I think it's tucked in here. Let's look at it. First of all, in the first half of this verse, I think we're being taught we must receive the Bible as the word of God. We must receive the Bible as the word of God. And this may sound very intellectual to you. It may sound like, boy, if this is the road to happiness, I've really been way off. <laughs> you mean really? Receiving the Bible as the word of God is the first step of happiness? I really believe it is. Because until you do, you can't embrace the secrets that are revealed therein as the key to the universe and the key to your own happiness. So Peter is saying to us, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. First of all, the authors of the Bible are his servants. Its authors are his servants. Simon Peter, a servant of the Lord. And so what we have in the scriptures are people who have authored it, who are simply slaves of God. The word there is slave, doulos. There's another word for servant that could have been used. This one is the same word that would be used of a slave. And the references there I've given you underneath that, the Exodus, Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel passages and so on, those are of other men who are called servants, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, Samuel, David. The prophets were called Yepheth, Yahweh, servants of Yahweh, servants of the Lord. So those who speak in the Bible are those who are who have laid aside their rights. And they're basically saying, I don't have any rights. I'm a slave. I have no rights. The only right I have is to obey my master, and my master is God. That is the ones who are speaking to us. They claim to be his servants. Secondly, and of course you have with Paul in Romans 1.1 and other places, James 1.1 and Jude 1, Paul, James, Jude, Peter, all the writers are saying we're servants of God. Secondly, its authors are his messengers. He says, Simon Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the word apostle just means to be sent out. Missionaries are apostles in that sense. They're sent out. But apostles here applies to a specific category of human being who was sent out, and that is those who are given authority to speak for Jesus Christ. You know in the Scriptures that the apostles were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus Christ. That's the reason the Apostle Paul, for example, makes much of his vision on the road to Damascus because he wasn't with Jesus after the resurrection and before the ascension. He saw the resurrected Jesus after the ascension and he made a big deal out of it. Why? Because that's a qualification for being an apostle. Secondly, apostles were personally commissioned by Jesus Christ. In Mark 3, 13 through 19, you'll see the calling passage where Jesus calls them himself after an evening of prayer. He designates them apostles and he calls those he wants. He's completely in charge. He recruits his own apostles and he personally commissions them. Once again, this is why the Apostle Paul made much of the voice that was spoken to him, that you're my servant to the Gentiles. Paul made it very clear he was personally commissioned by Jesus Christ to do what he was doing and to say what he was saying. And when he defended himself before King Herod Agrippa, he made that very clear. I'm here by personal commission by Jesus Christ. Thirdly, at the end of 2 Corinthians, you find Paul kind of drops a side comment that gives us a third qualification of apostles who speak infallibly on behalf of Jesus Christ. They are those who work signs and miracles. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, these are the things that designate or mark out an apostle. So you have those three qualifications that, that set a person aside as one who can speak infallibly in the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those are the ones who drafted our New Testament for us. As we, we have spoken earlier when we were discussing these things some months ago. So here, 
Peter is claiming to be his apostle. And you'll notice that Peter is very aware of his authority. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2, he says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he is giving, he is equaling the apostles to the prophets. He's saying, I want you to obey the Old Testament. I want you to obey the New Testament. That was already beginning to form even in Peter's latter days. And you pick this up, of course, especially in verses 15 and 16, where he says, um, uh, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Look at verse 16. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Oh, really? Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other, what? Scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter is already aware before he dies. He he has a self-awareness, as does Paul. We could find similar evidences in Paul's writings. They know they're speaking as these designated apostles. So Peter comes to us as one who is the servant of the Lord and a designated communicator for the Lord. That's the way the Bible's presented to you. As the Word of God, the Word of the Lord Jesus Christ through His apostles, the Word of God through the prophets. So when you read the Word of God, as J.I. Packer summarized it, you are hearing God preach. The Bible is God preaching. And it is His Word, breathed out, says the Apostle Paul, breathed out by Him. It's like His breath that comes out. That's what the Bible is. And so for all the squabbling about whether this contradicts that or this contradicts that, just take a time out just a minute. All these alleged controversies have many different ways of looking at them. And what you want to do is say, I know this is the Word of God, and now I'm going to approach it and figure out what it means. Instead of, well, I'm going to stand over this book and judge it and see if I believe it. That's not the way faith works. Obviously, you came to believe based on evidences. And we don't have time this morning, but we could speak about what evidence there is as to why you should believe the Bible is the Word of God and believe Jesus Christ is Lord. And so you obviously go through that process in your mind. But when you get the evidence that, the, that a reasonable mind is requiring, you bow your knee and receive it as the spoken Word of God. And that's what the Bible is. And that is a path to happiness, as we shall see. Secondly, in the second half of that verse... The Bible is received by faith. You say, how in the world am I going to believe this? There's so many intellectual questions. Have so many, am I supposed to read all the scholars and weigh them against each other and make up my mind? No. Ultimately, yes, you do the intellectual work. You're listening to me, I hope, with a critical apparatus in your own mind. And you're saying, does this man make sense at all? Is what he's saying plausible? Is what he's saying preferable? Is it true? Is it good? Is it beautiful? You have all that human, God-given apparatus in your mind by which you're evaluating what you hear. And Paul says that the, the uh, uh, who was it in Acts uh, 17? The Bereans were noble because they listened to him with an open Bible, basically. They analyzed and assessed everything that he said. You must do that too. But ultimately... When you receive the Bible as the Word of God speaking to your heart, you receive it by faith. Now, look what he says about faith. First of all, our faith is a gift. He says to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior have received, have received a faith as precious as ours. You have received a gift. And as Paul says elsewhere, uh, he says, so how can you be proud of something you just received as a gift? Did you work it up? Is it something intrinsically in you? No, it's not intrinsically in you. This is the point. It's an alien gift. It's given by the Spirit. And that's the reason you believe. It was not that finally, with your great intelligence, you had enough time to apply it to all the religious questions of your day. And finally, with all the wisdom that you have uh, credit for, you came to the proper conclusion. And now you're convinced because of your own mind. No, that's the way, that's the way unbelieving philosophers think. It's not the way, and that's the reason they can't come to conclusion. 
Because if they're really smart, they know they'll never know enough. But you came to your conclusions, if you did, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, because you were given the gift of faith. Leave your finger in Second Peter and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And look with me at a very important text that teaches us this. Ephesians 2, which would be page 1906. And here Paul is talking about our salvation and he says in 2.8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay? You've been saved not by your own merit that you've achieved. You've been saved by grace. Merit achieved by somebody else given to you gratuitously or graciously. So you've been saved by grace through trusting in the one who did it for you, through faith. So you've been saved by grace through faith. And then look at this next comment. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. What's not from yourself? Faith. You didn't work that up. It wasn't intuitive. It was given to you from the outside. God has been gracious to you. So He not only sent His Son to die on the cross on Good Friday 2,000 years ago, He sent His Spirit so that you'd believe the obvious. Because without His Spirit and without the gift of faith, you'll deny the obvious because of the corruption of the human heart. But you've been given faith whereby you believe the obvious. Turn over a few more pages to Philippians chapter 1. This is page 1919. And he says there in verse 28, this is a sign, this you're contending for the faith, is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. Now, he's talking about suffering. That suffering is a gift. That our suffering is given by Him for His glory and ultimately for our good, even for our happiness. But you notice the side comment? Just like your faith was given to you, so your suffering is given to you. He's using the gift of faith as a presupposition to show us that our suffering is also given to us just the way our faith is given to us. Now, those are a couple of examples where clearly our faith is shown to be a gift. And that is how we receive the Bible. Lord, increase my faith. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Ask the Lord to deal with this deeply spiritual issue. Now, uh, we don't have time to look at the meaning of this, the righteousness of our God. Let me just say this that some have wondered what it means when he says that we've received this faith through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Does this mean the same righteousness by which we are justified? No, I I really think the better interpretation would be, if you'll go back to these verses I've listed for you here, especially in Isaiah, you will see that righteousness and salvation are used almost interchangeably, or at least used in parallel. In Isaiah in particular, he'll say something about our salvation, then he'll say something about God's righteousness. They're used in parallel. So basically, the righteousness of God is his righteousness in saving his people. And basically, what Peter is saying is that we're being given this faith through the saving power and righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's Christ who's given it to us in his desire to save us. And that's the whole strategy. And so you'll notice also here that Jesus is clearly called God. That's another reason that some scholars have a hard time with this letter, I think, is that there are not too many places in the Bible where Jesus is explicitly called God. You certainly have it in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. At the end of John in chapter 20, you have doubting Thomas when he sees the scars, bows down before Jesus and says, My Lord and my God. Of course, liberal scholars say, he says, my Lord and my God. (laughs) But uh, who knows? Um, And then Paul mentions it in Romans and Titus, and there's a reference in Hebrew, but they're not Hebrews, but they're not all that frequent. But here it's very explicit. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he is presenting Jesus Christ as the center of the universe in whom we have faith and by whom we're given faith. Now, look at the rest of this sentence. You've received a faith as precious as ours. Our faith is precious, gentlemen. And basically, what Peter is saying here is your faith is just as precious as Peter's faith. 
It's the same faith. The faith by which Peter can repent of denying the Lord three times and be a superstar, (laughs) be an apostle. That faith is the faith that you have. The faith that has compelled Billy Graham for six decades of public ministry. It's the same faith you have. It's what the KJV calls like precious faith. The word here could be used for equal. You have equal faith with ours. That's what Peter is saying. We're all in this together. You think about the most noble characters you ever saw in the Old Testament or the New. You have the same faith they have when you have faith in Jesus Christ. That's how powerful it is. That's how gracious the gift is. That's how we ought to be thanking God even today for giving us the faith by which we trust in His Word. Now, lastly, come to the second verse. We've been given a faith to believe the Bible, and it is our faith that leads us to true happiness. Here you have it. Here's the connection. It's the gift of God that gives us faith, the trust in the Bible, that gives us happiness. Why? Because the Bible tells us what God has done for us, what He's doing for us now, and what He's going to do for us. And gentlemen, that leads to a truckload of happiness. If you really believe it. And this is when you know that you're reading the Bible differently than from a, a mere objective scholar, so to speak. You really hear it and believe it like the voice of your father. A faithful father. Who tells you when he tells you he's going fishing, you actually go fishing. So when he tells you you're going fishing, you get excited because you know he doesn't, he doesn't lie. Some of you had daddies who told you they were going fishing and they never took you fishing. I know, I know men like that. Their hearts were broken as kids. Some of you had fathers who would never break that kind of promise. And so as soon as they tell you you're going fishing, you're already excited about it. By the way, that's the reason that you not only want to take your wife out, you want to tell her four days ahead of time. You get four days credit for it. Now, if you, take, if, you, if you just take her out, it'll help your sex life one night. If you tell her four days ahead, it helps your sex life four nights in a row. If you want to get really crass about it. So get credit for it long ahead. That's what God has done with us. He's told us these promises. When you believe it, when, here's, here's how you know you believe the Bible. You get excited about it. If you're not excited about it, I don't think you believe it. Oh, you, you believe it's written. You believe it's in there. Intellectually, you're not, a, you're not hostile to it. You just don't believe it. Because if you did, your life would be different. You'd be excited about it, and it would be shaping the way you live your life. You'd be living your life in view of eternity. So this is the way happiness works. He gives us the Bible with the promises in it and telling us about reality and how he has saved us. Then he gives us faith to believe it. And through that faith, we appropriate all these incredible blessings. And what are they? Whether grace and peace, great blessings, grace and peace. Gentlemen, if 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 I could convince every single one of you that every one of your sins and your most shameful moments are completely washed away and eliminated, if I could tell you that it's just as though you never did it, some of you'd walk out of here just just on a lilt. You 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 wouldn't you'd hardly be able to believe it. You couldn't contain yourself that you were just this shameful, difficult thing. In your life, it's just completely gone as though it never happened. That's what grace is. And that's what's being promised to you in the Bible. Do you believe it? And some of you who are struggling financially or you have health problems or you're grieving over the loss of a loved one, if I told you, you know what, everything is in a, in a moment, very soon is going to be completely restored. You're heading for total health. You'll be able to jump higher than Michael Jordan. You know, dunk it two hands over the back of your head. You know, you're going, to have, you're going to have skills like you never believed, and you're going to have perfect harmony with everyone around you. You're going to have everything you want, and you're only going to do what you want to do when you want to do it. It's called peace, shalom, where the wolf lies down with the lamb. And in Isaiah 11, you have this picture of well-being. That's what shalom is. That's what peace is. It's, it's not just having justification before God. That is peace with God, but it's peace within ourselves. Peace with other people. Peace with the universe. Well-being. Abundance. That's grace and peace. That's happiness, gentlemen. And that's promised to us in the Bible. And God gives us the gift by which we believe it. Now, notice that this happiness is not only great blessing, but it's abundant blessing. <laughs> it's as though, it's as though the apostle was saying, now, in case you didn't get it the first time, with the grace and peace, in case you're not aware of the linguistic issues 
to see what grace really is and what peace really is. Let me just say this. It's in abundance. There's a whole lot of it. God is infinite. And in His infinity, He happens to like you. And so He infinitely likes you. And He is going to take everything that He owns and everything that He's accomplished and He's going to lavish it upon you. And this will be unlike being, like in my family, one of five children. My children, I'm one of four. My children are one of five. Where they may say, well, my dad doesn't have very much. I mean, he's a preacher. And then look around, there are five of us. Sure hope he doesn't have another one. We'll just have to divide it up six ways instead of five. And sometimes, you know, you think, I just... Yeah, everyone's going to get their fair share. Gentlemen, you ain't going to get a fair share. You're going to get the entire universe. And it can't be divided because it's infinite in its value. So he is saying abundant blessing. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I came to give you a life and I came to give it to the full. What if Jesus, with all the life of the resurrection, says to you, I'm giving you that life. I'm giving it in abundance to you. I'm giving it to the max to you. If you believe the Bible, you've got to be a happy man. Because you've just been told you are an heir of the greatest estate that could possibly be conceived. Then lastly, he says this is through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You see what Peter is saying? This happiness comes through the knowledge of God. And that's the reason that the false knowledge that's being taught in the church in various places. This is in the church, this false teaching, not outside the church. It was outside the church, but it had come inside the church. And he says this is the reason that the teaching is so important because it leads to a knowledge, either a true knowledge or a false knowledge. And this blessing, this happiness that comes to us, this that Aristotle and every brilliant human being has ever sought for is only found through the knowledge of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You must know him as he is. You must embrace him. You must walk with him. And then all these blessings devolve upon you. That's the reason that it's important that we receive Second Peter as the Word of God. Because when we do, we'll also receive the grace and the peace which he proclaims in this letter. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this great letter. We thank you for all the letters and all the books of the Bible. Help us to learn not only to study them, but to receive them with open hearts to believe what you have revealed to us. We pray that grace and peace would fall upon every soul of every man in this room today and that we would walk out of here as men who are fulfilled and that we, like old Simeon, can say, my eyes have seen the salvation of God. Now you can dismiss your servant in peace. That There's nothing more that we really want. We have it all. God, we pray that you'll give us that mentality through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, even today as we go about our work. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.